We are in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Acts 1, 12 to 26. As Jonathan said, we had a wedding yesterday, so the two are hitched. It was good. It was an outdoor wedding. And so I and the couple were under a gazebo and everybody else got soaked. That's pretty cool. And then I do want to honor Jeff, Pastor Jeff, 13 years on Friday of, yeah, yep, 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 and Becky. <laughs> uh, you notice we've done responsive reading today, and we did it a couple weeks ago. Um, some of you might wonder why we're doing something like that. It's just another way that we can engage the congregation and and active participation. Um, It's not something we'll do all the time, but it's a way for you to speak together God's Word. It's nothing new in the church, if you're familiar with church at all. These kind of things are used repeatedly. But that does speak to what Jonathan said about even praying or now preaching. There is never a portion of the service where you're just passive observance. It's always about you participating by faith in what we do, even as you're listening to prayer. You can be praying for the person praying. You can be praying for people around you. You can be hearing things that would move you. And so we always want you to be engaged. And to that end, as you have your finger in in Acts, of course, you may be aware that in Acts, we're going to hear the name Peter frequently. Peter is, especially in the early chapters, he's the leader of the leaders. He's the head of the apostles, and he wrote a couple letters to churches, and I want you to turn, if you would, to First Peter. So if you go to the right towards the end of the Bible, a couple of books before Revelation, after Hebrews and James is First Peter, and look at First Peter 1. If you're doing our Bible reading program, we read First Peter this week, Thursday or Friday it was, I think, and um, in verses 10 to 13, we have some instruction on preaching. So I thought since Peter's going to be a big part of the text that we're preaching out of this week, it might be helpful from you to hear from him on an inspiration of the Holy Spirit what he thinks of preaching. So what Peter does in verse 10, he's talking about the salvation that we have in Christ and the prophets in the Old Testament, that they were prophesying about the grace to come in Christ They searched and inquired carefully in the scriptures of when Christ would come. They predicted the sufferings of Christ in verse 11 and subsequent glories. So he's simply saying all of the scripture is about Christ. We're going to see that in Acts. In Acts, they're consistently preaching the gospel and they're consistently quoting from the Old Testament from the prophets about Christ. So that's what preaching is for. Verse 12, it was revealed to the prophets that they weren't serving themselves or the people of their time, but us. Through the things announced, through the things preached to you, the good news by the Holy Spirit sent to heaven, things that angels long to look into. So you're going to hear preaching about things that angels long to look into. What a privilege for us. But what is preaching for? What should we do? He gives us four things. Verse 13, prepare your minds for action. So you should be engaged in the preaching, preparing your brains to do something, to act on it. So again, you're not passive. You're to be active, to be sober-minded. That is not to 
be wild in your imagination, but to be self-controlled in your thinking, uh, just setting it on scripture, and then you should be setting your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So something you should be actively doing as you hear the preaching, setting your hope fully on Christ. Not on what's going on in the world, not on your good works, not on the good works of your parents, but on Christ. The preaching is to help you do that. And then in verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but be holy. The preaching is to call you from your fleshly lusts and desires and to holiness. So as we consider Acts 1, if you want to go back there, that's what it's for. It's for those four purposes, that you might prepare your minds to take action on the text, that you might be sober-minded, that you might set your hope fully on the grace of God in Christ, and that you may not be conformed to your former lusts, but be holy in your conduct. And so I hope that by God's grace, by the Holy Spirit, you might do that because of the preaching of Acts 1. Let me read these verses for us. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journeys away. What's a Sabbath day journey? If you remember, the Sabbath is holy. It was to be set apart and distinct from the other seven days. And the Jews under the um, leaders would create kind of very specific ways of things you could do and couldn't do. So how far could you walk on the Sabbath? That was something they parsed out. Well, the way that they did it is if you lived in a walled city, one walk around the wall was as far as you could walk on the Sabbath. That was all that you were allowed because it was a day of rest. And so that distance was anywhere between a half a mile and a mile, depending on the size of your city. And so the Mount of Olives, Mount Olivet, was about that far from Jerusalem. Three quarters of a mile or so. That's all that you were given to walk. So they weren't breaking the Sabbath. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all, about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and, among, in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, 
who also was called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Father, may the meditations of our hearts and the words of our mouths, the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our God and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, just to set where we are, this is the time between Christ's ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So Jesus had told them, if you look back to last week's text, to go to Jerusalem and wait there until they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, And so we're in that kind of in-between time. So this is a good opportunity for those of you who don't like to wait, might receive some instruction in doing so. They're obedient to Christ here is the main thing. Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem, they go to Jerusalem. Jesus told them to gather together to wait, they're gathered together waiting. And so this is a good example of simple obedience. Now, uh, I want to just deal with a couple of questions that this text might bring up in your minds. Uh, The first being this issue of apostles. So we see in verse 13 that the 11 minus Judas are listed just as they are in the Gospels with a couple of differences. In the list of apostles, Peter is always listed first. That's not just... Uh, happenstance, that's because Christ said, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. That Peter was marked out by Christ as a leader of the leaders, an apostle of the apostles. He's an apostle, just an apostle, and yet he has some leadership. We'll see that in a moment. And then after Peter, always John, James, and Andrew are listed next, but in various orders. And then after that, the rest follow But there's only 11 because Judas the traitor, which is not the same Judas listed last in verse 13, Judas had, as we see, been a guide in verse 16 to those who arrested Jesus. He was as wicked as you could be. And so Peter brings up the issue of we need 12. Of course, Jesus chose 12 men to be his apostles, 12 being the number of tribes in Israel. And so Jesus is the new Israel. He's reconstituting his people. And so they needed a full number of 12. And so they make plain what an apostle is. In verse 21, has to be a man. Has to be a man who accompanied Jesus during all three years of his ministry has to be somebody who witnessed his ascension and his resurrection. Now, you have these 11 apostles, and then you also have, in verse 15, a company of persons called the brothers, about 120 in total, including some women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. So there's a distinction here in this text between an apostle and the brothers, or if you want to use more common language, an apostle and disciples. 
Now, we use those terms maybe sometimes in the Bible interchangeably, but there is a distinction. So an apostle is somebody chosen by Christ specifically to be an eyewitness of all of his ministry and especially that he was raised from the dead. And so you see this, uh, this distinction of an apostle. And in verse 22 at the very end, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So in the book of Acts, this is going to be very important. Because it, our, our faith isn't based on a dream given to a man. Our faith isn't based on a group of guys that get together and come up with a new religion. Our faith is based on historical objective facts that were seen and recorded faithfully. And so when they went out preaching the gospel, they weren't out preaching the thoughts of men. They were out preaching the actual facts of what God did to bring salvation to us. Namely, Christ was raised from the dead. And they saw it. And so they needed to replace Judas with one who saw it. And with one chosen by God. Because Jesus handpicked the, the apostles. Remember back in the Gospels, Jesus didn't just kind of say, hey, who wants to be my apostle? He went up and said, Matthew, you follow me. And so that's why they do this thing with lots. You'll notice in verse 26, and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. In verse 24, they pray, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. And they relied on this practice of casting lots to know which one the Lord had chosen. So before we get that, let me say a couple other real quick things. There are no more apostles. There's, there's no more apostles. There are no more eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, handpicked by Jesus. There's no more inspired scriptures and so you should never, ever claim to be an apostle, claim to hear from Christ as these people are, and those who do so, do so against Scripture. Another quick issue as we talk about apostles and, 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 and disciples, you notice that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is noted in verse 14. This is the last time she's mentioned in the Bible. She's not an apostle. Note that. She is a disciple. She's a, a sinner saved by faith, just like you and I. She, of course, is an incredible example of faith. Who can who could forget when the angel came and said, You're going to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and give birth to the Son of God? And she simply said, May it be. To me, as you've said, what a great example. But she is nothing more than that in the Bible. We should never, ever be found praying to Mary. She is not a co worker with Christ in our redemption in any way, shape, or form. She's noted here because of her faith as an example and because of her 
being the mother of our Lord, but she is not the Lord. And so any kind of prayers to her, any kind of elevation of her, of more than just a great example of faith, any kind of prayers to her is only idolatry and superstition. And so we ought to be very careful to not go beyond the Bible in it. So they replace Judas. Peter takes it upon himself, being the leader of the apostles, to preach a very short sermon. He quotes out of Psalm 69 that judgment had come on Judas. Goes into even quite gory detail here. I notice in Awana, we don't ever memorize those verses about the bowels gushing open. Might be something for next week, Claire. You'd get extra shares if you memorize that one. But it's, it's very sobering. Judas betrayed the Lord and he suffered great shame because of it. He hung on the field that was purchased with the money, the pieces of silver that he traded for Jesus. He hung there until his body became bloated. Whatever he was hanging by broke and his body broke open. And so Peter's preaching that the judgment reserved for such people as shown in Psalm 69, came upon Judas, so it's obvious that he's no longer counted among the apostles. But then in Psalm 109, it says that that office needs to be fulfilled, that, that office needs to be filled, that place needs to be replaced. So he's making the biblical case for why Judas fell, which had been very troubling to the disciples, wouldn't it have? A traitor among the people handpicked by Jesus. And what does Peter do? He goes to the Old Testament, he goes to the Psalms and says, no, no, no. Don't be troubled. This was always the plan of God. Isn't that helpful to you, brothers and sisters? To know that everything that happens, even something as horrific as that, is not outside of the sovereign will of God, but is a part of the plan and will of our sovereign God. And so Peter gives them great comfort in this. And then points to scripture that Judas needs to be replaced. Now I want to get to this in a moment, but what a moment for great controversy and division to come upon the early disciples. Can you imagine? You have 120, many of whom followed Jesus, saw his ministry, saw his death, saw his burial, saw his resurrection, and you know what happens in these moments. I want him. And so somehow they choose two to put forward. They're named here, Joseph, called Barsabbas, called Justice, and Matthias. And they didn't want to just pick one. There wasn't a vote. They knew that apostles had to be handpicked by God, and so they used what has often been seen in scriptures, this issue of casting lots. In Joshua 18 and 19, the promised land was divided among the Israelites by lot. Not, not, not by capital L-O-T, the man lot, by casting lots. Some of you gave me a confused look there. The priests in First Chronicles chapters 24 and 25 were assigned duties or given positions within the service of the temple by casting lots. Solomon said in Proverbs 16.33 that the lot is cast in the lab, but it's every decision is from the Lord. What is it to cast lots? Well, Sometimes we do very similar things. We write people's names on a scrap of paper and put it in a hat and pick. That's really what this was. They would write the name on a stone or maybe on a 
piece of wood or on a bone, put it in a container and shake it out or pick it out. And so they wrote these two names, Joseph and Matthias, on something, put it in a container and picked it out. And one of the curious things here is there's, a, there's some detail of this man, Joseph. He's listed first. Joseph, also called Barsabbas, also called Justice. So I think there was probably some inclination that he was supposed to be the guy. But as God always does, he typically chooses not according to our choices, but according to his. And so the lot fell to Matthias. All right. I wanted to draw that out for um, the issue of one of the common ways that we misuse the book of Acts is by taking things that are descriptive as proscriptive. What do I mean by that? Should you make major decisions by casting lots? Is this teaching you, Christian, that the way to be a faithful Christian when you're facing decisions is to write out the various options on pieces of paper, put them in your John Deere ball cap, and pull it out? Is this proscribing what you should do or simply describing something? We're going we're gonna to run into this issue time and again in the book of Acts where faithful Christians see something that the early church did, just described, and then jump, make the leap into, okay, we have to do that. Again, we don't see the casting of lots again in Scripture. We see it very rarely in Scripture. We see it only for kind of super important mega decisions that God's people have to make that could be very controversial and difficult where we really want God to make decisions and not us. And so, no, the casting of lots will not be a typical regular practice in the church, and it never has been in the history of church. How do we make decisions? We pray. We look at wisdom. We looked at getting wise advice from people that are godly, and then we decide with faith in the Lord. That's how we make decisions. And so if there's two girls that you're interested in, don't put their names in a hat and pick. Or if you're a girl for guys. And we also see the issue of consent. That within the church, or, or, or in marriage, we always want people to give their consent to decisions. That, that you guys, as you, we don't arrange marriages. Parents should be very careful to meddle in who their kids marry. We don't demand him but not her, or him but not him, sorry. <laughs> and here, these folks these early disciples, this early kind of proto-church is part of selecting a man that they are going to give real authority to. He's going to be a confirmed eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus, one of the twelve. And we want the church to give its consent to its leaders. And what a great, better way here in this time than this casting lot. So anyways, that, uh, I thought some questions you might have, and maybe that's more than you wanted, but 
Hopefully it was helpful. What I want to do in the rest of our time is look at verse 14 mainly. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. So let me remind you again back in 1 Peter that God has you here to hear this word preached that you might prepare your minds to take the action of being one accord with each other. That God has you here that you might, according to this text, become sober-minded, engaged in the word, submissive to it. That you might see in this text another opportunity to actively set your hope on Christ. That you might see in this text an opportunity to turn from your desires, your lusts, your fleshly demands, and strive for the holiness of being with one accord, devoting yourselves to prayer with God's people. Isn't verse 14 a sweet description? That's the thing. As I read this text and read this text, my mind, my heart, all these with one accord, together, devoting themselves to prayer together. Who wouldn't want to be a part of something like that? I think this is one of the most beautiful descriptions of the church in the Bible. And again, this is a moment fraught with danger. The Lord has ascended. Right? When the cat's away, the mice will play. There's a void of leadership. Who's going to take it? They're waiting. They don't have anything to do. Idleness is the devil's playground. They have to pick a new apostle. They talk about a moment where everything could have gone sideways. All of the arguing and bicking. There's 120 people here all involved in this decision. Let your mind go here a moment with some sanctified imagination of what could have gone wrong here. Who does Peter think he is? Why is Peter talking? What about Andrew? I want to hear from Bartholomew. Why is Peter always the one speaking up? Lots? Are you kidding me? Why would we cast lots? Don't we have any faith? Just pick already. Why? Why just Joseph and Matthias? I like Asher. Asher should be. His name should be on a rock. Oh, I don't think Acts 69 has anything to do with this. You're taking scripture out of context, Peter. Does that sound familiar? They're in a small group, big small group. That person talks a lot. I'm just so sick of being in a small group. I want to find a different one. I mean, there's just so much that could be going wrong here, especially with Christ leaving. And yet, what we read is the description, a very brief description is, with one accord they're together, devoting themselves to prayer. Not bickering, 
not yipping behind the scenes of Peter's leadership, not pretending to know more about Scripture than the Holy Spirit-inspired, Christ-chosen apostle. They've gathered in obedience to Jesus, even though he's not there. They have the faith to listen to him. They walk three-quarters of a mile, likely on the Sabbath, gather in an upper room. I don't know if it's the upper room that Christ did the first Lord's Supper. It could be, it may not be. But there they are waiting with one accord, unified, setting aside individual desires and listening to one of the apostles praying. It's really something. Now, they're waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but who could deny that the Holy Spirit isn't actively working in these verses? How could this unity and this devotion be possible apart from the work of God in them? This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the work of God within his people. And so will we be these kind of people? This, this is what this text is, is screaming at us, gently nudging us, whatever you want. Will we be this kind of church that has every kind of reason to bicker and argue and complain and I don't like that, I like this, and why does that person do it, why not that person? All of that can always be true. Can be true in your home. Why did dad do that? Why not this? Why does my husband want this and not that? Why does my sibling do this one and not that one? You can always do that. Or you can be humble and have the faith to be of one accord and devoted to each other and to praying to the Lord. This is the choice we always have, isn't it? And which one will we be? There's a reason that this description is given here because this is what we're going to see consistently in the church. But there's going to be increasing trouble as we go along in Acts 2. And there's always going to be a choice for the disciples. Will we live in humble submission to those God has appointed and give ourselves to each other in this kind of real humility and care or not? And who doesn't want to be a part of this? Jonathan prayed, John 17, the one thing Christ was praying for his church, that we would be one, as the Father and the Son are one, so that the world may know the truth of Christ and his gospel. And Christ specifically points to the unity. The unity. But it's always a hard unity, brothers and sisters. It's always a choice of faith. I want to point out a, two ways that we see this playing out, this unity playing out. And first, as I've already pointed at, they give themselves to Peter's leadership. Peter takes the lead. He takes the reins. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been in a situation where somebody needs to stand up and take the reins, very difficult to do. It's, it's very scary. You're always second-guessing yourself. And Peter does it, because he's supposed to. He stands up. He directs them biblically on how to think of Judas. He directs them biblically on how to replace Judas. 
He's probably the one leading them in prayer. He takes the lead. And they are in one accord coming under Peter's leadership. And so they are in one accord, unified under leadership. Now, if that isn't applicable to your life, because everywhere you're going to have to give yourself to somebody's leadership. Everywhere. In the wedding yesterday, I I used the good old-fashioned traditional Christian vows And what the church has used for centuries that we in our feminist age have just erased out of the vows is that the woman vows to obey her husband. It uses the word obey from 1 Peter 3. In the Bible it says that Sarah obeyed her husband and she's commended as the good example to Christian women to obey your husband. And so in the vows, the woman vows to obey her husband. She vows by faith in Christ to live in her home and in her society in one accord with her husband by obeying him. You do this in the workplace. You have a supervisor, you have a boss, you have somebody that you report to. And you know, like I do, that we are impossible to lead. And just look at the history in the Bible. Moses, at the first opportunity when Moses up on the mountain, what do Miriam and Aaron do? They lead a rebellion. And what does Israel do all throughout Moses' leadership? Grumble and complain. Yep, 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 yep. And so... We live in a day where what Christians are becoming known for is how courageous we are in yipping about leadership. So, brothers and sisters, do your children how how do your children hear you speak about your supervisors at work? Or your coworkers? How do they hear you speak about civil authority? How do they hear you speak about church leadership? About business ownership? How do they hear you speak about the waiter or waitress who is waiting on you at the table in the restaurant when they're not present? Are you teaching your children? Are you teaching your other believers? Are you teaching younger believers how to submit to authority in one accord with faith? What a sweet description here at a moment when they had every opportunity to kick against Peter's leadership and to foment rebellion that they just submit. It's really sweet and it's commended to you. Not only do they submit to Peter's authority, they gather together in one accord for prayer. We'll see this throughout Acts. The church in its infancy is always getting together. At the end of Acts chapter 2, Verse 46, day by day they're attending the temple together and breaking their home, they're breaking bread together in their homes. We see this already being laid, the foundation of that being laid here. You couldn't keep them apart. They loved being together. This was the example that Christ set, wasn't it? 
He wanted to be with his apostles. He wanted to be with the larger disciples day in and day out together. This has always marked the church. It should always mark the church because we're a body. We're family. You'll note in this passage, we don't read that they're called the church or they're called Christians until Acts 11. Before that, the consistent description of the church is brothers, familial, the closest, most intimate term you can use to describe the relationship between people on this earth, family terms. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, women and men included. This is the general term because we all have one big brother that, to whom we can call father, father. We're all brothers in the kingdom. We're all equal. And so they're together. They love it. And of course, when you have 120 people, there are all, there's a lot of differences here. You have different political affiliations. Among the apostles themselves, you had people who came from the Pharisees, people who came from the Sadducees, people who came from the Zealots. You had differing amount of wealth. Matthew was a tax collector. He was rich. Others were not so. You had different levels of education. I'm sure some were fat and some were thin. It all kinds of differences. And what is the church but the brotherhood of Christ that bears with each other at our differences? That's where your fellowship is always tested. Let me use neighborhood small group again. You're in a neighborhood small group and you have people that you would rather not be with there that irritate you. It's not because of sin. It's, it's not because of theological disagreement. It's just the, I wouldn't hang out with you except that we happen to be in the same neighborhood in the same group. And when you talk, it grates on me. And I'd rather find another group, right? That, that, that's where the fellowship is tested. That's where love is tested in our differences. You'll notice that a lot of times in gatherings like small groups, you tend to just want to be with people at your same season of life. We've seen that neighborhood small groups. I think it's... I understand it, and it's normal, and I don't, I'm not dogging you on it, but it is sad that you end up with just all empty nesters in one and all young families in another and without much mix. And yet it's, it's bearing with each other. Part of God's goodness to you is to put you in a brotherhood, in a church family, where others that you find different, who may offend you, that you learn to bear their burden because Christ bore yours. Christ bore your burden of sin. Christ took your sin upon himself, and we find it difficult not to bear the sin of others, just to bear some of the small differences of others. So that's why we see in Acts this consistently going back to this Beautiful picture, they're in one accord, devoting themselves. There's 120 different people here. There is nothing that would bring these people together except Jesus Christ. 
And so where they're different is, I think, where they're most effective. There's nothing the world will find more attractive and compelling about the church than that. That's just the truth. There is nothing the world who divides over everything will find more attractive and compelling than when we dwell in unity as a choice. Not because we're all the same, but because we have one thing in common, Christ. And everything else we'll be willing to set aside and bear because of Christ who bore our burdens. Isn't that convicting? Aren't you awful at that? Right? See it in your own home with your own kids. They will not bear the differences of each other. They will not put up with their sibling being any different than they are. That's what makes your marriage so tough. Why isn't she just like me? Why isn't he just like me? And then they devote themselves to prayer. Prayer is, of course, seeking the blessing of God. It is depending on God. It is the consistent mark of faith before God. It is the consistent mark of unity. It is a consistent mark of submission. They wouldn't dare do something so important as replacing Judas with a lot of prayer. They wouldn't dare gathering together without prayer. So in closing, Christ had ascended. He is their salvation. He is their righteousness. He is their Lord and ours. He's no longer physically present. And so they gather in one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, because that's where they could be with him. Christ had been with them the previous three years. They had died. Their hope was shot. They thought it was over, and then he rose. He appeared. He was with them the 40 more days, and then he's gone. What's the one way they could continue to be with him? By gathering to pray. They loved Jesus, and they wanted to be with Jesus. And the only way to be with Jesus who had ascended would be to gather with Jesus' people and pray together because they loved him. Isn't that awesome? Do we love him? I hope so. The charge is this. Peter the same apostle that we just saw in Acts 1, later exhorts us in Second Peter chapter 1 to add to our faith a list of godly desirable traits. The list concludes with the highest and most important traits, and those are brotherly affection and love. So we are to make every effort, the Holy Spirit tells us through Peter, we are to make every effort to mature in our faith with the goal of having real and genuine and lasting brotherly affection and love for each other. How? Well, you have a table at your house, don't you? All right. So may brotherly affection and love motivate you to gather around your table with other brothers and sisters because you love them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In Jesus' name, and amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.